Well, thank you, Joshua, for your testimony. Um, you know, I remember praying with you at the Shepherds Conference last year, and uh, Bob and I and Marcus and you prayed together that God's will be revealed to us. It was our desire that you would come with your wife and children to Cornerstone and grow with us and minister with us and maybe possibly be sent out by us to Malaysia. And we're thankful to the Lord that God is uh, revealing a sovereign will to us. And just having your hearts, you and your wife, be knitted with us, the elders in the church, uh, we're, we rejoice in that, that they were so united in doctrine, united in Christian life, in ministry. And we look forward to uh, many years, maybe a lifetime of uh, serving the Lord together here and in Malaysia. What an opportunity that we have with Joshua for him to go to Malaysia to plant a church. It's not really missions for him. It's going back home. You know, he speaks the language. He knows the culture. He loves the food. You know, he knows the traffic signals and all the, all the info. And for him, uh, it's really just church planning. And for us to partner with someone like that to plan a, a build up a church is, is a real opportunity for us. So, let's, if you have been praying, great. Keep on praying. If you have not, start praying. And I uh, hope some of you are um, you know, packing your bags as we speak, metaphorically. You guys are maybe getting ready. And it is our heart's desire that if it is God's will, that's our prayer, that we'll be able to send a few families, a few singles with them to plant a church in Malaysia. And that's not, that's a joyous thing, right? Especially, you know, what a joy to have many of you um, ministering overseas uh, with Joshua in that capacity. Well, thank God for you, brother. Well, here we are, back in John 17. Took a break for several weeks. And now we're back. Read an article this past week from ESPN.com. And it was an article called The Top 10 Most Feared Competitors in Sports. So top 10 uh, men and women that you do not want to face in your particular sport. So one sport in tennis, they said Roger Federer is the most feared competitor. In uh, golf, obviously, it's Tiger Woods. They said, and this was just, you know, throughout history, in boxing, the most feared competitor would be Mike, Iron Mike Tyson. And gambling was a sport in, uh, in Malaysia. Well, a sport, a recent sport that's caught, you know, a lot of popular, very popular today is competitive eating. And the sport of competitive eating, the most feared competitor is uh, Takeru Kobayashi. Uh, the guy in uh, Nathan's Hot Dogs in uh, Coney Island, he's the most feared competitor in that sport. Well, for me in John 17, the most feared com- uh, verse for me in John 17 is verse 21. Um, I knew I would face this verse eventually, and this might be the reason why I delayed studying this passage for so many weeks, but I knew it was an eventuality that would come, and here we are today facing John 17:21. This issue of Christian unity, biblical unity. <laughs> there are manifold, many reasons, various reasons why this issue is so difficult for us to study and understand and rightly apply to our Christian lives. I want to highlight to you three maybe key reasons for me why the challenge for me to rightly understand the biblical concept of unity. You should have an outline in your bulletins today. The first reason is that it is one word, it's one idea, but has many different usages in the Bible. One word, one idea, but, in, but it refers to many different, um, different things, many different usages. 
There are different, refers to different kinds of unity, different levels of unity. There are variety of unity that is referred to in the scriptures. First of all, it refers to a relational unity. <coughs> this is referred to most often in the epistles. Philippians 4.2, Paul pleads with Yodia and Syntyche that they would agree with one another. He's not talking about an ontological, spiritual, or positional unity here, right? It's not that one is a believer, one is an unbeliever. No, they're both believers. But he's talking about relational unity, that they would agree with one another. They'd be one-hearted, one-minded. They would pursue peace with one another. Likewise, 1 Corinthians 1.10, where Paul told the Corinthians, I appeal to you, I beg of you, that all of you agree with one another that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Again, he's talking about a horizontal unity, that they would be in agreement in terms of a perspective in ministry, in perspective of an issue in the church, in their minds and their thoughts, that they would be in agreement. Philippians 2.2, Paul told them, make my joy complete by being like-minded, he talks about having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. <coughs> this, these are all talking about the relational unity within a single community of believers. Unity within a local community of Christians. It is a degree unity, right? It's a broad spectrum, 1 to 100. It's not absolute. It's not either or, it's both and. This unity is often hindered by sin and sinfulness. And so we've experienced this in our Christian lives or in the church, where this relational unity is hindered because of selfishness, because of envy, because of pride, because of jealousy. This uh, horizontal relationship unity is severed or hindered because of our sinfulness. At the same time, sometimes... When the Bible mentions unity, it's talking about ministry unity. Ministry unity. And potentially it has nothing to do with selfishness. It has nothing to do with sin. It's just simply disunity based on differences in doctrine and personal convictions. Or unity based on doctrine and convictions. This is why it's such a challenge, right? It's so difficult. Maybe I'm losing some of you already. <clears throat> For example, the best example I can come up with is Acts 15. Don't need to turn there, I'll just uh, summarize it for you. Possibly one of the most um, insightful and yet disturbing passages in the book of Acts, where in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas just came back from a, just a fruitful missionary trip. They went out and proclaimed the gospel, and God opened many hearts, and they were able to sow seeds, and many churches were planted. So in Acts 15, Paul says to Barnabas, hey, let's go back, and it's not really a second missionary trip in a sense. Let's go back and revisit the same cities, not for the purpose of evangelism, but for the purpose of edification. Let's go back to all the believers, that, all the people that we led to Christ, and go back and encourage them in the faith. And Barnabas is like, great, let's do that. Let's go back and encourage them with the Word of God. But Barnabas had one requirement, one caveat, one request. He wants to take John Mark with him, with them again, in their second missionary journey. 
<coughs> Colossians 4.10 tells us that Mark is Barnabas' cousin. Whether familial ties caused him to have a greater heart towards Mark or not, we can't, we can't be certain of. But Barnabas made this request. Now, Paul, the apostle, was adamantly against taking John Mark. Why? Because in their first missionary journey, they took John Mark with them. Now, in the midst of that first missionary journey, John Mark wasn't prepared with the hardships of missions work. And in a city called Pamphylia, John Mark said, I want to go home. I'm homesick. This is too tough for me. I want to opt out and go back home. And John Mark, in Paul's eyes, deserted them and went back home. <coughs> so when Paul dies, no way I'm taking this guy back with me on the missions, the missions work. That is not a place for young believers. It is not a place to disciple anyone. Only disciples are to go. He's still young. I can't trust him. I can't depend upon him. No way, Barnabas. I am not taking him. And Barnabas is saying, Paul, brother, have some grace. Have some mercy. Open your heart. Why, who among us have not failed? Give the brother a second chance. I know, I talked to him. He, he's, he's different. He's grown. Let's give him another chance so that he can prove to, him, to, to you that he is worthy of, this, of such a task. Well, Acts 15.39 says that they had such a sharp disagreement that ministry-wise, they went their separate ways. And apparently in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas, their names are never again found together in the book of Acts. Apparently they never ministered together after this time. Now, though they had a sharp disagreement, I don't believe they were sharp towards one another. I don't believe they were angry or they were bitter or they were vindictive towards one another. <coughs> I don't think they were harsh and sinful towards one another. It wasn't because of Paul was prideful or Barnabas was whatever, you know, just you know, overlooking sin. It was just a difference in terms of personal convictions. As a minister of the gospel, Apostle Paul had convictions. And he believed the mission field was not a place for young believers, someone like John Mark. It was not, it was not right for, to put, put such a pressure on John Mark in that way. For Barnabas, it was a whole different issue. So they went their separate ways. It's insightful for us because this happens... This happened in church history. This happens today. And I still don't understand it. How godly Christians can disagree. And it's not about doctrine, necessarily. It's not about sin. Just about Christian life. Just about even scripture. Just about ministry. Godly, humble, God-fearing believers can disagree and part ways. And go their separate ways. It happened in the past. It happens today, and it will happen in the future. This is, not, this is not really dealing with sin or obedience. It's just about personal convictions and about Scripture. The third usage of unity is when the Bible refers to positional unity. <coughs> Spiritual unity. This is the unity accomplished by the cross through the Holy Spirit. A mysterious, supernatural work of God by which we are spiritually and positionally joined together by the Holy Spirit. So relationally, our unity can be hindered and, and, and severed even. Uh, Ministry-wise, it can be uh, severed. 
but not positionally, not spiritually. This unity cannot be undone by the work of man. It is not a possibility. <coughs> John 10, 16, our Lord said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. It isn't there are many flocks, many different shepherds. No, there's one church, and Christ is the one chief shepherd above them all. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit. We were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. <clears throat> this is the positional unity that is the reality for all Christians, all followers of Jesus Christ. We have a spiritual unity positionally before God that cannot be undone. It is permanent. It is accomplished by Christ once and for all. And it will be fully realized in heaven. We will see that unity realized perfectly in heaven. This is the first challenge of studying on this issue, because when someone talks about unity, we have to define the terms carefully. Are you talking about relational unity? Are you talking about unity in terms of personal convictions as, as it pertains to life and ministry? Or are you talking about unity that is positional, that is spiritual, that is permanent? So, the, the usage of this term makes it difficult to study this topic, the various usages. The second reason why it is so difficult is that, that there is utter lack of unity in Christianity today. It is so foreign to us, is it not? <coughs> if anything, Christians are divided. Right? Christians are known by many things. The one thing is that man, Christians are not united, if anything. They're, they're, they're a divided group. Unity is not a hallmark trait of Christians. Currently, the Christian church is divided over anything and everything from doctrinal issues like Calvinism, Arminianism. You know, Joshua talked about spiritual gifts. If I met Joshua in 1999, man, we would not be very united because he's, you know, speaking in tongues and prophesying that, you know, over me and my future and I'm, you know, I'm somewhere else. There's differences in issues like dispensational theology and covenant theology. Even nuanced issues like the time of rapture. I got an email t telling me, did you know this pastor that you know changed his position? I'm like, what did he change it? Is he no longer Lordship Salvation? Does he deny the inerrancy of Scripture? Does he deny the deity of Christ? No, he now believes in post-tribulational rapture. Can you believe that? Right? So we're divided on the time of rapture. Pre, mid, post. Pre-mill, on-mill, post-mill, pre-wrath. Right? Even baptism. Not just infant baptism and believer's baptism. But even the mode of baptism, there is divisions and controversy. Sprinkling, dipping, or pouring. 
Right? You baptize in the name of the Father, or in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or only in the name of the Holy Spirit. There's divisions based on these issues. <coughs> what about church government? You know, some churches believe in elder leadership. Some churches believe in uh, congregational rules. Some churches believe in uh, senior pastor. Or even in practical ministry issues like singing. Right? A very controversial issue today is type of singing that is done in the church. Some churches have psalms only. Even no instruments. All instruments are of the devil. Especially that guitar and bass guitar. And especially those drums. You have that in the, in the church, it is sin. So no, no, you know, no, no singing outside the scriptures, only psalms. Or some say only hymns. Or some say you can sing choruses, but you can't repeat them more than two or three times because that becomes Eastern meditation. What about Christian living? You know, smoking, drinking, dancing, movies, about politics, about evangelism and missions. I mean, you look at Christianity today and it's very fragmented. It's hard to find unity in the church. So in light of the reality of our division, to study John 17, 21, when Christ talks about unity, it makes it very difficult. It makes it a challenge. Third reason why it is so difficult <coughs> is that the conventional view, the popular view of John 17, 21, is, I believe, erroneous. The popular view of John 17, 21 is that Jesus prays for the unity of believers. And that view is such a majority that it is a settled interpretation, it is a settled view taken as gospel by a great majority of believers. I believe it's erroneous. But it is a challenge to understand John 17, 21 because that view is such a settled view in the minds of so many well-believing Christians. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? You know, it reminded me of a TV special by John Stossel. Uh, the title was Common Myths That Are Held by Many People But That Are Not True. So if so many people hold these myths as truth, that it's hard for them to conceive of, conceive that, it is, that what they're believing is not true. It's, it's, it's erroneous. Uh, it tackles many, many myths. First of all, one myth is that muscle turns into fat. Right? Many people believe that if you work out and you have muscle and you don't work out, it turns into fat. So it, people believe that and live according to it. You tell them, no, muscles do not turn into fat. Muscles might decrease in size and you might gain weight and gain fat, but it doesn't turn into fat. Another myth that people believe is uh, getting cold will give you a cold. Right? How many moms tell you, you know, have told us, you know, put a jacket on when you go outside or you'll catch a cold, right? Put on a hat, put on your gloves, because if you're cold, you'll catch a cold. <coughs> Public health expert Dr. Mark Callahan explained, being cold has nothing to do with getting a cold, right? Running outside without a shirt on in zero degree weather won't give us a cold, you have to get exposed to a virus, pick it up, then you'll get a cold. But many people believe that nonetheless. Or how about this myth? Shaving causes hair to grow back thicker. Right? So I, you know, I don't want to like die on this hill and talk to people about this. I had a parent you know, shave their child's head because their hair was like thin. So they shaved it thinking that it'll grow back thicker. So I'm like, yeah, that's fine. You know, I don't want to like, you know, 
tell you you're wrong because, you know, you did all of that for no reason. But that's a myth. That's not, that's not true. Uh, Dr. Herbert Howard Sobel, a dermatologist who has spent years studying hair, says it's not true at all. It's not going to grow back thicker. <coughs> it's not going to grow back coarser. It's not going to grow back more quickly. That's in your genes. You have thin hair, you have thin hair. You've got thick hair, it doesn't matter if you shave it or whatever, right? The final myth was dangerous to swim after eating. You know, if you, right before you swim, you eat, and you can get cramps or you'll drown and you have a difficult time. That's a myth, right? So, you know, these are settled views. You tell these people, no, you know, that's not true. Because it's such, a, it's such conventional wisdom, a difficult time going against what they already believe. Likewise with John 17, 21, so many Christians just assume that that Christ is praying for unity. It's hard to shed light and propose an opposing viewpoint. So, those are the challenges we'll deal with the interpretive issue of verse 21 very soon. But before we do, let's deal with two preliminary issues concerning unity. Two preliminary issues concerning unity. The nature of unity that our Lord is talking about, the nature of unity, the kind, the type, the depth of unity. <coughs> our Lord is not talking about uniformity. He's not talking about external uniformity where believers are like one another externally. He's not talking about imposing some kind of clothing or ritual or tradition so that Christians look like one another before the world. He's not talking about an institutional unity, organizational unity, uh, where all the churches are organizationally united under one single authority on the earth. He's not talking about such unity at all. He's talking about a spiritual unity, an internal unity. Verse 21, that they may be one, <coughs> just as the Father is in Christ, and Christ is in the Father. Verse 22, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Verse 23, verse 26, I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me, may be in them, and I in them. He's talking about an intensively intimate spiritual unity that goes to the depth of the internal relationship within the Godhead. The parallel is just as a father is united with the son, and the son is united with the father, likewise, in the same way, in the same spiritual intensity, Christians are united to one another and united to God Himself. This is the only comparison that Christ can give right? related to, to the church with one another and church to the church, church to God within the Trinity, God the Father and Jesus the Son. Christ talked about this unity throughout the Gospel of John. This Indivis indivisible unity, this inseparable unity, this intimate unity that the Father had with the Son, John 
I and the Father are one. John 10.38 Father is in me, I am in the Father. John 14.10 Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? John 14.20 In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. This unity is not just external. It is the oneness that exists eternally between the Father and the Son. And this kind of unity is given to Christians. But we have this positional spiritual unity with one another. Unity with the Father. G.C. Ralph said, the unity that the Lord is talking about is that true, substantial, spiritual, internal heart unity which undoubtedly exists among all true believers. And we experience that in the church. Or we come from different backgrounds. We come from different cultures, different languages. You know, our stage of life is different. Our experiences are different. But when you meet a fellow believer, there is this instant bond, instant unity, instant commonness, koinonia fellowship that you, we did not produce. It's not institutional. It's not organizational. It is not external. <coughs> but it is spiritual, wrought by the Holy Spirit. Second preliminary issue is the importance of unity in the church. Not only is it permanent in the church among believers, it is something that we are to pursue in the church because the Bible teaches us that unity is absolutely crucial. Though it is positional, spiritual, permanent, uh, cannot be destroyed. At the same time, the relational unity, ministry in terms of, of unity in terms of ministry and life. We are to pursue it. We are to cherish it. We are to protect it because it is absolutely crucial. In fact, we'll find out later, <coughs> it is one of the most powerful tools for evangelism. One of the most powerful tools. Being soft and light in the world is not possible without unity. But the question is, and this is the $1,000, $10,000 question, just how important is unity among believers? How important is unity among believers? Is unity to be pursued at all costs? Is unity more important than theology and biblical doctrine? Is unity among Christians more important than direct statements of the Word of God? Believers will say, the fundamental doctrines, we must be united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the secondary doctrines, we should compromise in for the sake of unity. Issues like women pastors. Issues like spiritual gifts. Issues like inerrancy of scripture. <coughs> Those are secondary doctrines. And because unity is so important for evangelism and missions, we should compromise on those issues for the sake of unity. Is, Christian, is unity more important than the Christian life? Obedience to scripture? Sin issues? Some contend in the name of love. 
name of tolerance and unity, we should overlook, even accept sin in the church, even accept sinful behaviors. You know, tolerate, accept and embrace sinful behaviors in Christians for the sake of unity. (coughs) We shouldn't judge one another. We should give one another unconditional love. We shouldn't confront sin so that we will preserve unity in the name of Christ. All of this because of the greatness of our task, because our task is global evangelization, we should overlook doctrine, uh, sin issues, wisdom issues, all for the sake of unity. And where do they go to support these ideals? They go to verse 21. Verse 20 and 21. Go to the text with me. John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who would believe in me. (coughs) Through their word, that they may all be one. This is their argument. I'm summarizing here. You know, very bottom lining it. But because Christ prayed for unity... Because this is the prayer of the second person of the Trinity. It trumps all the others. It's equal in terms of priority as the Word of God. It's equal in terms of sanctification. That's how important our unity is. Therefore, uh, we must compromise in terms of God's Word, compromise in terms of sin, for the sake of unity. Because it is the prayer of Christ. But is it really the prayer of Christ? It is my proposal. It is my contention. And I want to defend this uh, thesis. That Christ here in verses 20 and 21 is not praying for unity. In fact, he's telling us that unity is the result of his prayers. Unity as a result of his prayers. Right. <coughs> we need to get a little detailed here. It's like reading a, the fine print of a contract. I read this week, uh, it's a whole illustration. I don't know if I share it or not, but I will just to kind of help you guys catch up. I, I got all these Delta Sky miles. I'm flying all over, you know, Spokane and the Czech Republic and so forth. And they said the miles are expi- expiring, so I need to use them or lose them. And only way I can use them is, you know, to get magazines. I got to look at all these magazines. I don't want none of them. And the only thing that I could possibly read is Wall Street Journal. Why would I get Wall Street Journal? It's better than getting something like cycling magazine or scuba diving. So I said, okay, get me Wall Street Journal, right? I'm, I was going to lose the miles anyway. So I've been getting Wall Street Journal every day for the past two weeks. They've been piling up in the trash can. I'm like, man, I should read one of these just to get something out of you know, my, my subscription to the Wall Street Journal. So I, I opened the Wall Street Journal this week and I found the illustration that will work for this morning. So I redeemed my mouth somewhat. Um, you know, uh, last week, um, uh, actually two days ago, uh, a Japanese brokerage firm made a costly clerical error and it was reported in the Wall Street Journal. They set up an order to sell their stock but instead of writing, sell one share for 610,000 yen, which is about $5,000. So sell one share for 610,000 yen. They wrote, sell 610,000 shares for one yen. So some clerk made this typographical error and it cost the brokerage firm 
$250 million. You know that commercial Southwest Airlines, you want to get away? <laughs> Some guy in Japan wants to get away, right? <clears throat> this happened in 1992. A clerk working for the Solomon Brothers mistook a customer's order to sell $11 million worth of shares. And he understood it as sell 11 million shares. It caused chaos in the New York Stock Exchange. So details are important. People lose money because of overlooking details. Well, so much more in the Word of God. We need to get to the grammar, get to the original languages, to find out exactly what the author's intent is, the authorial meaning, so that we can interpret rightly, so that we can understand and live rightly as God intended us. So again, let's go to verses 20 and 21. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. I believe that unity is the result of Christ's prayer for the following three reasons. First of all, the two imperative mood verbs in John 17. Two imperative mood verbs in John 17. In studying the Bible, verbs help us greatly aid us in understanding the text. Verbs are like neon signs that help Bible students interpret the author's intent of any given passage. Therefore, when we exegete any verse, one of the first things we look for is the verb, the active verb of that verse, of that sentence. Now, every verb has tense, voice, and mood. Tense, voice, mood. Tense is simple, past, present, and future tense. Past, present, and future. It also has a voice, active voice, middle or passive. Active is, you know, I hit the ball, right? Or passive is, I was hit by the ball. Or, I hit myself with the ball is middle, the voice. There are different moods as well. There's indicative mood, most common, just expresses facts. Subjunctive mood. Indicates possibility. I might, you know, uh, do this tonight. <coughs> I, I might talk to you later on this afternoon. A particular mood is the imperative mood. Very important. Imperative mood indicates giving a command or making a request, a prayer, asking. Imperative mood indicates commands or making requests. In John 17, the Lord's high priestly prayer, there are only two imperative mood verbs in our Lord's prayer for the disciples and for all of us. Starting from verse 6 to verse 26, where He prays for the disciples and prays for us. If you examine it in the Greek, the Lord makes only two requests for us. The first request is found in verse 11. Verse 11. And we studied this uh, weeks ago. Keep them in your name. That's his first imperative mood verb. Father, keep them in your name. What is he talking about? (laughs) Go back to verse 6. He said, I have manifested your name to these people. I have revealed to them the truth about your character. The truth about your nature, your plan of God, your plan. The world has rejected it, 
But these 11 men have embraced the truth. Go down to verse 8. They have received your word. They have received the truth that I gave them, the glory that I revealed to them. They have received them. They have received your name. Name as a designation of who God is. So for them, seeing Christ was seeing God. So they received Christ and Christ's revelation of God. And so Christ's prayer for them was simply this. Keep them in your name. Keep them in your word. Father, protect them. That they would hold fast to the revelation given to them. Protect them from doctrinal error. Father, keep them from straying away from the truth about God. Keep them from compromising on the gospel, on the word of God. Lord, do not allow them to deviate to the left or to the right. From the gospel of Christ, of the saving nature of God, protect them. That was his first prayer. <coughs> Second request is found in verse 17. Second imperative mood verb. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He asked that God would sanctify His people. Because God is holy, His prayer for us is our holiness and that we would be holy through the Word of God. Through the Scriptures. So in John 17, these are the two requests that our Lord makes on behalf of the eleven men gathered in the upper room. And verse 20, for all those who would believe through their word, and that is all of us. That is the prayer, and the result is our unity. The first reason I believe it is a result is because of the imperative mood verb. In verse 20 and 21, I ask, that is not imperative. He's talking about the prayers that he has already lifted up. The second reason is the Hina Purpose Clause. The Hina Purpose Clause. Look at verse 21. That they may all be one. <coughs> the Greek word for that is Hina. It can be translated so that, or that, or in order that. And in the New Testament, the most frequent use of Hina is for purpose. To start a purpose clause. Not only that, when the word hina is, is, is used with a subjunctive mood verb, may or might, it points to a purpose clause or a result clause. Purpose slash result clause. And that's what you find in verse 21. That they may, that they might potentially be all be one. This indicates both the intention and its sure accomplishment. William Mounts, talking about the Hina clause as purpose clause, says the New Testament writers employ the language to reflect their theology. What God purposes is what happens, and consequently, Hina is used to express both the divine purpose and result. Uh, we find this throughout the Gospel of John. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son 
so that Hina, whoever believes in him, should not perish. There is that subjunctive mood verb. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. It is, is it a potentiality that cannot be confirmed? No. It is potentiality that is the result of believing. It is assured. God gave His Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, will not perish. It will not. He will not. But He will have everlasting life. Uh, John twelve forty six. I have come into the world as light so that, purpose clause, whoever believes in Him may not remain in darkness. It is assured. I have come into the world as light, so that, by purpose clause, anyone who believes will not remain in darkness. Go back to John 17, 1. <coughs> Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. There is a request there for Himself, imperative mood verb, that the Son may glorify you. Purpose clause, subjunctive mood verb. He's saying glorify you, then I might glorify you, I might not. That's not what he's saying. Glorify you, then I might. That's my purpose, and I will accomplish it. Top two reasons are enough for me, if not for you. Imperative verbs in the John 17. The Hina purpose clause, the third reason why I believe that unity is the result and not the prayer is I want to be consistent. We want to be consistent. And the immediate context. Go back to verse 11. Verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. There is that request which you have given me. That they may be one, even as we are one. In reading to the commentators, almost all agree that in verse 11... That unity is the result of Christ's prayer that the Father would keep the disciples. But then in verse 21, they digress. and They're inconsistent. And in verse 21, they say that Christ is praying for unity. We want to be consistent. Verse 21, verse 11 and verse 21 have the same grammatical construction. Plain reading. Understanding will lead us to believe that just like verse 11, verse 21, Christ is telling us that our oneness, our unity is the result of his prayers, not the content of his prayer itself. Marcus Rainsford said this, We need to be reminded that our Lord's prayer is not the origin of the union of which he speaks, or the cause of it. But it's the fruit and the result of it. He is not praying that a union be established between himself and his people. But that the union should be enjoyed and manifested by his people. You know, we got really detailed. But I have done this because it is so important. Because again, if unity is the prayer of Christ, then we must make that our priority. Over against doctrine, over against the Christian life, we must prioritize unity within our church and within other churches as well. Setting aside our doctrinal differences, our doctrinal convictions, our convictions in ministry, convictions in Christian life, we must strive for unity. 
But, if Christ indeed did not pray for our unity, if Christ indeed told us that unity is the byproduct of being kept in the Word of God and sanctification, byproduct of truth and holiness, byproduct of right doctrine and right life, it tells us how unity is to be achieved. Unity is achieved in the Christendom by aligning ourselves with the Word of God and by growing in sanctification. It's not by striving after unity. It's by striving after the Word of God and striving after obedience to that Word. Let me give you an illustration that will help everybody catch up and make sense of that point. <coughs> we have a nine-week premarital class in our church. Everybody, everybody that's dating we, or engaged, we have a nine-week session, and we you know, employ all the insights from men like Adams, Jay Adams, men like you know, uh, Doug Wilson and Lou Priolo and John MacArthur and so on down the line to help our uh, engaged couples grow in their re- uh, marriage relationship. But more often than not, what they leave, behind, leave, what they remember the most from our marital counseling, premarital counseling, is not all these deep insights in the scripture, but a simple triangle illustration that goes back to some you know, youth pastor probably in 1950s, where here is the husband, here is the wife, and here is God. Right? You want to seek unity in a marriage relationship? It's not by being united to one another, but it's by what? been united to God the Father. And closer you are to God the Father, the closer you are to one another. Hence, that triangle illustration. Very simple, but very accurate, and totally pertinent and relevant to what Christ is saying here. That the way to unity with one another is through truth and is through Holiness. I mean, um, I've experienced this. There are so many churches come to us and say, well, you, know, you guys are kind of prideful. I say, why? Because you don't want to minister with us. You know, why don't you support us in our missions endeavor? Why don't you part- part- participate in our conference? Why don't you join with us in this ministry endeavor? Why are you guys so separate? Why are you guys so uh, you know, isolated? Why won't you guys partner with other ministries and all these endeavors? Christians come to us and they want to do, you know, be supported by us and join us in our ministry efforts. And my response is, relationally, I love you, brother. I have nothing against you. I want to be gentle, meek, and kind, and humble. But I can't be united with you apart from the Word of God and apart from holiness. Just like with Joshua. If, I met, if we met Joshua four or five years ago, we couldn't do church planning in Malaysia? No way. Because we, are diff- we were different in doctrine. We were different in terms of our view of God, our view of salvation, view of sanctification, view of ecclesiology, our view of spiritual gifts, our view of the Holy Spirit, our view of end times. So because our doctrine is different, our practices will be different. When we were have prayer meetings, one of us we praying in, not Chinese, not English, but some other tongue, right? And we're doing our ministry, our preaching will be different, our counseling will be different, right? 
Not only that, with believers, difference in sanctification, difference in terms of Christian obedience, terms of, of holiness. We can't have unity apart from these two pillars because unity is a result. I believe this is why, and this is why, not I believe this, this is why, we have FOF as our membership class. <coughs> because we want to be united with all the members. A believer comes to our church and we want to be indispensably, essentially, spiritually tied together in our hearts. But it is through the Word of God, through doctrine. We must have you on the same page in terms of our knowledge of God, knowledge of Scripture, our view of the church and our view of ministry. But it goes beyond that. You know, Many of us, we are united in doctrine, but we are divided because of holiness, right? Because of sanctification, right? You know, going back a few years, when I was in the campus ministry, you know, we had wrong doctrine, but we had right lives. We were fervent for Christ. You know, we were intent on memorizing scripture, cold turkey evangelism, open our preaching, living a frugal, you know, sanctified life, or wrong doctrine, you know, I go to masters and meet, you know, Bible Christians, all right doctrine, but there is still lack of unity because their lives are filled with movies and TV shows and, and secular pursuits and, you know, worldly living, right? It requires, it's both and, not either or. So though we can change our mind through FOF to be fully united with us, it's not just doctrine. It's, just, it's not just right doctrine. It is also right life. It is so important that we understand this, that we strive after unity in the right way because <coughs> verse 21, back to our text, it tells us the powerful purpose of Christian unity. The powerful purpose. The purpose of our unity is for the sake of evangelism. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Again, verse 23, so that, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. This is the purpose of our unity. We become a powerful tool for evangelism. A powerful apologetic when people from different, ethnic, different ethnicities, different cultures, different backgrounds come together and we have one heart. We are united in our minds. We are united in our purpose. We sacrificially, selflessly love one another and we contend for the gospel as one man. We stand out before this world. As a light, we are salt to this world. We stand out in this sin-divided world. John thirteen thirty-five. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Matthew five sixteen. Let your light shine before others. Light being united, pure light, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. <laughs> Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless 
innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. First Peter 2.12 Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Clearly the Lord teaches us here that the only Bible the world reads is the character of Christians, our likeness to Himself. And that likeness is sh- shines forth when we are united in Christ. Marcus Rainsford said again, the world will not, will not be brought to a sense of its ruin, nor to any pre- practical sense of the goodness of God in sending Christ, except by the manifestation of unity in His people are we manifesting such unity in Christ? Are we living epistles? Unity is observable, and it is a powerful defense that Jesus has indeed come from the Father, and He was sent to us by God, and that we are God's people. Right. Let me quote J.C. Ryle. The church of Jesus Christ, washed in His blood, clothed in His beauty and in His glory, united to Himself as head, is to be the everlasting monument of the love of God upon which the world shall read that God has indeed sent His Son. A few closing thoughts and applications. Uh, Number one, This is the conviction of our church. We are called not to compromise on truth or holiness for the sake of unity. We are not to compromise. Christian unity apart from God's word and apart from true holiness is a false unity. And it dishonors Christ. If any believer, any church wants to be united... The only possible way is to be united by the Word of God and by submission to that Word. Biblical doctrine and obedience to that doctrine does not divide Christians. No, it unites Christians. Doctrine only divides truth from error, righteousness from disobedience. Our first commitment is unity with God the Father by which we are united to other believers. Secondly, in terms of relational unity, we must pursue that with all Christians. Positionally, we are united with all believers. But because of doctrine and holiness, we might be divided with other believers. But relationally, we must not be divisive. Our attitude must not be divisive. We might not partner with some believers. We might not affirm some ministries. We might not um, join with others in evangelism or missions. does not mean we, we are to be harsh or arrogant or prideful or divisive in our attitude relationally. Let us be loving. Let us be gracious, gentle, meek, kind, tender-hearted. 
Let us not be, um, you know, doctrinal policemen and women who go out and we're out there correcting everyone's wrong theology, wrong doctrine. We're all learning. We're all progressing. Maybe humble, firmly holding to our doctrinal convictions, but gracious as we relate to those who differ with us. Paul said to Timothy, Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Point is, patient, being kind, not being quarrelsome, teaching with gentleness. Two more points. Is there division in our church? Not uh, positionally. Um, Not doctrinally. But I believe there is division. There are divisions relationally. Marcus Rainsford said again, nothing gives greater occasion to the outside world than the differences between professing Christians. The bickerings and contentions between men and women of the church has always been one of the world's greatest hindrances. Instead of looking at us and being constrained to confess, see how these Christians love one another, the world has too much reason to say, see how they criticize one another, judge one another, malign one another, end quote. Do we realize that our sinfulness, our pride, and our bickering, our criticism, our judgments, our harshness, our grudges against one another, not only dishonors Christ, but is weakening our testimony before this world. If you are harboring this day any grudge among a, before a fellow believer, if there's any unforgiveness in your heart towards a fellow Christian, if you have been offended and you hold that against your fellow believer and you are divided in your heart and you're saying to yourself, well, long as she stays on that side of the church, I'm okay. long as she doesn't talk to me, I'm okay with that. We'll just coexist together. May God open your eyes to see that this does not please Christ and you're hindering the purpose of Christ's church to be a light in this world. May God, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit convict your heart and cause you to reconcile with your brother and sister in Christ this day before the sun goes down. Finally, the the current growth of our church makes unity increasingly difficult, but not impossible. May we not relent. May we, we must not relent on our pursuit towards relational unity. May we continue to love one another. Continue to be hospitable. May we be loving and open our hearts to strangers so that God might build us up as living stones to the head who is Christ. Let's pray.
Father, we do thank You and praise You for praying this prayer audibly and granting us wisdom from the Scriptures to know how we are to conduct our lives and conduct ministry in the church. Oh Lord, we do not want to uh, go beyond the Word of God. At the same time, we do not want to go do not speak what you have clearly spoken in the scriptures. Oh Lord, help us to, to, to draw the line clearly in terms of uni- unity and division so that we would be rightly united with you and united with your people and that we would divide ourselves. We would be separate from false teaching and false practices. God, through it all, Lord, we pray that you would grant us uh, humble hearts, gracious hearts, meek and gentle spirits, so that no one would have anything bad to say about us. So that when we're in heaven, we can truly say, Lord, with clear consciences, we stood on the truth of Scripture, and that we did all things as best as we knew according to the Word of God. We ask, O God, that you would uh, give humility and courage to believers today who struggle with uh, bitterness, struggle with holding grudges, struggle with um, not forgiving others. You'll grant them a clear view of the cross to see how much you have forgiven us so that we would graciously and generously forgive one another. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.